Welcome to FraserCast, a place where we discuss all things autism, mental health, and special needs. I'm your host, Dave Fettig. Before we begin, I would like to thank our sponsor for this episode, Geritom Medical. Geritom has a strong commitment to support Fraser's programs. Geritom's close and rewarding partnership with Fraser helps the amazing residents and staff that live and work at Fraser. Geritom's focus is to serve in the Twin Cities community, not solely as a pharmacy provider, but also as a strategic resource and partner. Thank you, Geritom, for your continued support of Fraser and the families we serve. With us today, we have Rachel Gardner, Director, Fraser Autism Center of Excellence. Rachel has more than 20 years of experience with serving Fraser families with autism. In 2004, she was recognized with the Carol Gray Award, a national honor for making an outstanding contribution to the lives of children with autism. Rachel is a certified provider of Early Start Denver model and has expertise in the areas of parent guidance, diagnostic evaluation, and outpatient therapy. For today's show, we're going to focus on the basics of autism and what questions parents might have. So let's begin at the beginning. Okay. What is autism spectrum disorder? Well, it's a hard definition because it is such a range. So it's at the base of the definition, it's a neurodevelopmental disorder, which is characterized mostly by social communication needs and social needs and um, repetitive play and, and, uh, and interests. So that is a broad description. Mm -hmm. uh, before we go further, yeah. can you give us some examples so we yeah. can understand it a little yeah, better? Yeah, I sure can. So what people often talk about is if you've, if you've met one child with autism, you've met one child with autism because it is such a huge range. So some of the characteristics that we look for are um, individuals who have difficulties initiating and maintaining age-appropriate friendships. Individuals have a hard time communicating their wants, their needs, their emotions, have a more challenging, difficult time um, with kind of self-regulation. So keeping themselves calm when upset or frustrated with something. Um, oftentimes, our, end of our kids or adults on the spectrum have intense interest of either play objects, in particular um, some sort of toy when they're younger, all the way up to topics. They might be really interested in certain topics, know a lot about that topic, um, and don't always know how to use it appropriately within social situations. These sound like almost borderline examples for all types of human behavior. Mm -hmm. uh, it must be challenging to diagnose. Yeah, it is. It can be very tricky. So that is exactly correct that if you look at these behaviors anywhere along development, they're typical at some point. It's really, we look at um, when those behaviors go outside the typical expected age range. So for example, uh, off one of the Kind of red flags. Not every child with autism has this, but one of the red flags might be hand flapping, repetitive hand flapping. Very young kids do that. That's part of what they do when they get excited. But when they are five, six, seven, they stop doing that. And when it's present at five, six, or seven for our kids, that's when it starts to be a concern. So looking to see when those behaviors happen outside of, of the typical expected age range, or do those behaviors have more intensity than we might expect? Do they last longer than we might expect? So we have to really um, have a good understanding of child development, human development in general, and looking to see, is it typical within that expected age range, or is it is a quality different or outside of what we'd expect? So you've begun to address this, but I'm going to take the <laughs> point of view, as I indicated earlier, of a parent. Mm -hmm. And so uh, give me some early signs um, of autism in, yeah. in a child and maybe talk about how that may show itself uh, over the course of a child's 
young life. Sure. So as I say these, it's, it's an important caveat to say not one of the red flags is indicative of autism itself. We have to see a whole constellation of them. So a couple of the red flags that we typically see is lack of eye contact or lack of reciprocity. So for very young babies, we've all had that experience, I think, with a young baby as a parent. You can get your baby to laugh at you, smile at you, and you smile back at them without saying anything. A lot of times our parents talk about how much work it is on their end to try to get their child to connect with them. So it's that back and forth reciprocity that we often see missing. We often um, also talk about lack of response to names. So kids, um, parents often say they were afraid their child was deaf first, and that's what got them to seek intervention or assessment first was looking at their hearing. But it's really selective, so they don't respond to name that social cue, but they might respond to a piece of candy being opened up in the in a room next door. So it's not about the hearing, it's more about that social connectedness. Also, we talk about um, joint attention is a, is a really big word, but it's really important looking at um, potential for autism. And so that means a lack of pointing or lack of following a point. So if you think about a young child who might see an airplane, they get excited about that airplane, they're going to point to the airplane and they're going to say, look, and try to get you as a parent or as a caregiver, as a grandparent, to look at that airplane too and be as excited about it as they are. So they point, they look at you, they point back until you know that, or they know you have seen it and are excited as they are. Our kids oftentimes don't point or look at things the same way and or follow a point with directions. Other times people talk about just... Um, Regulation, like I mentioned, is, is a bigger word, but that really just talks about the inability to be soothed as, as a baby. So, you know, with real young kids, a baby cries, a parent picks them up, and typically they're soothed when that familiar caregiver is able to give them that comfort. A lot of times our kids are not. So they remain upset. They have a hard time calming. Sleep difficulties is very big, very common for our kids as well. So, again, not one of those is indicative of autism by any means, but it's when you start to see the full constellation. It's certainly not sleeping well. Cannot yeah. be indicative alone. Of exactly. Absolutely. Very true. That. Yes. So let's drill down a little bit more. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you talked about babies. Mm -hmm. uh, it's fascinating to think about that you can actually you know, yeah. detect certain things. But so if you could maybe, mm -hmm. you know, put hard dates or times. I mean, you can't, every individual is different. Yes. But just to give a sense along the path of a childhood how different things might uh, mm -hmm. arise. Sure, sure. I, yeah, I mean, as you as you mentioned, that range of what's that typical development is huge for babies. So it's really quite hard to, to pinpoint that. But, you know, three months, six months, we're starting to see that um, the eye contact and the giggling and that reciprocity for sure. And if... Um, that's missing, that's pretty key by that point. We say most parents are recognizing that by six months, that there's something a little bit different if they're not able to really connect with their child in that way. By 18 months, even 12 months, by 18 months for sure, we're able to make a pretty predictable and stable diagnosis wow. of autism. So, so um, for parents who are concerned or have mm -hmm. questions, uh, what do you recommend for parents and, and at what time should they, you know, reach out to mm -hmm. an institution like Fraser? I think as soon as you have concerns, we always tell parents, as parents too, we, we have, we have to follow our guts and we tell parents, uh, I hear so many stories from parents saying they knew early on, they knew something was different. And um, I would say definitely reach out to pediatricians and talk with them. That would be the first point of contact. 
pediatricians, there's a lot of effort um, doing um, <clears throat> some education about what are these first signs for ed for pediatricians as well, so that they know when to refer around for additional assessments. But um, I, I think there's it's never too early. You know, we see very young babies and. Mm -hmm. Especially if they're siblings of kids who already have a diagnosis, we're able to watch and track development along the way. And if we're able to intervene when they're really young and tweak some of those moments that parents have with their kids anyway and play and in those moments of kind of quietness, we're able to actually change uh, and make some big changes. So I would, I would not wait. Um, I would definitely seek out intervention or seek out support as soon as possible. You mentioned siblings, and we've talked about parents. This mm -hmm. is a reminder that mm -hmm. autism is not just about the child who's right. diagnosed, but it's about the whole family. Absolutely. Uh, can you talk to us about how a diagnosis like this can impact a family and yeah. what it means for the family going forward? Yeah. Yeah, so I think one thing that kind of loops in our last comment, too, is we've been doing a lot of screenings for families who already have a child on the spectrum, and we'll screen the siblings. And it's striking... We often get more elevated scores or concerns from families who already have a child with autism on the, on the sibling. But when we reach out to connect with that family to start intervention, less than half of them are actually ready to start that intervention with the, with the second child. Because I think it's just the process is exhausting and it's yeah. emotionally exhausting and it's hard to think about going through that again. So there's a couple different things about siblings. If if you have another sibling on the spectrum, that's one path. But if you have typically developing children, siblings is a different path. So we we do see that it definitely is a, the whole family need, and those needs might change. So I was just talking to a group of parents last week. When we look at what type of intervention package we need for that particular child, it it changes over time. And even at points, it may not be that child who has autism, who's our primary focus of intervention. It might be the parents. Maybe the child's doing okay, but now it's the parents' time to make sure they're getting their needs met. Or maybe it's now the sibling's turn who needs, uh, are not getting met and need to have some intervention. So we need to look holistically and not just at the nuclear family, but also grandparents also play a big role. Good point. And we also talk with um, many of them as well. To and We try to really approach whoever is giving care to that child and how we can help support and explain, educate, and then give some basic strategies to use. Well, it's fascinating to think that this is, as you described, a holistic approach to mm -hmm. to this diagnosis uh, for the whole family. That's, mm -hmm. that's wonderful to know. Um, so in terms of range of needs, and now you've described the interrelationships among other members of the family, what, what types of... Uh, you know, what what might those needs look like? What what can happen in a family? What 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 would a a schedule look like? What will my, a life look like for a family? How does it play out? Mm -hmm. It can be very busy. So we try to tell families at the very beginning when we when they come through the first step is always a good assessment. So we start with assessment. We do a bunch of testing with the child so we know what their needs are. When we are giving our feedback and talking about recommendations for treatment. The, the positive thing is we have a lot to offer now. I've been doing this for 23 years. The amount of services that we have now doesn't even compare to what we, I mean, it's just huge compared to what we used to have. So good and bad, we have to try to help the families outline and prioritize where to start. We always tell parents, do not start with everything. You're going to burn yourself out, burn the child out. So really helping them look at what are the needs right now 
and then how those might change and just be upfront about that, that we have a package now, but it, it may change over time. So what we typically see though, is we would have um, a lot of our kids are in school programming and the schools are doing a fantastic job of looking at the needs in the education setting. So we try to make sure parents are connected with the community partners and school being a, a huge driver there. Um, medical needs, so making sure they have a pediatrician who understands autism and can look in, and or willing to um, coordinate and collaborate as, as needed. Um, and then there's a whole range of other mental health type services that, that may be needed. And so some kids need full day programming and they might go to school half days, a place like Fraser half day, or they might have even higher needs and come to just Fraser full day. So, but it's just important to know that there is a, a package and it's important to have the parents be the drivers of that package, but they have guides behind them explaining what those needs are right now and what how can we help meet those. And that we have to look at those every three, six months and make sure that they're making change, we're hitting the right targets, and it's appropriate. You mentioned schools. Mm -hmm. To what degree are schools um, able to you know, help be a part of this and uh, yeah. in, in working with Fraser and working with others to help yeah. children. Yeah, schools are a great collaborator and there's a whole range of services that they can also provide. The way that our systems are currently um, in, our, in our country is that we have to have two assessments. So a medical evaluation such as done by psychologist provides a medical evaluation which opens up services like therapies, like day treatments, like ABA services. Schools have to do a different assessment. We use each other's information as much as we can, but schools do an assessment to really looking at what type of supports do they need to be uh, successful in their education setting. So that could look a number of different ways for kids, um, but they get a document called an individualized education plan, which has all of their different resources in that plan. Um, and it could be from more kind of self-contained classrooms for kids, only kids with autism or similar needs, to kids who are in a typical mainstream classroom and maybe have a little bit of uh, a, a person sitting with them to help support them, and or maybe completely independent with the teacher having some particular strategies that she or he may use throughout the day. Oftentimes, kids can get occupational therapy, speech therapy through the school, as well as private too. So we tell parents to... to try to access as much as possible in a planful manner, but the school systems are, are really well equipped and doing a great job. From a purely emotional state for a parent, mm -hmm. uh, I would imagine there'd be a high level of anxiety or stress or worry yeah. about their child in a, a school. Mm -hmm. um, in your experience, have, and you've just addressed this yeah. uh, in a sort of technical way, but just broadly speaking, uh, kids are feeling okay in schools, parents are feeling good about having their kids in schools, it, it, it must be on the top of the stress list for parents. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I, as a provider, I think we often hear the stories when it's not going well, but I think that um, you know, there's a vast majority of kids are, are doing well and parents are supported through the school districts. Um, I think it is for all of us, all of our kids, you want your kids to be successful in school and having special needs on top of that can make anybody feel anxious. And, um, you know, of course, they're concerned about bullying, which I know is top of mind for everybody. And just making sure that the teachers are able to really access that child's strengths. Our kids have incredible strengths. And if we can tap those, um, you know, we're able to see some amazing results. So we just try to say, it's so individualized. It's about that match between the teacher and the and the kid, child, as all of our kids. Um, but really, try to help the parents feel equipped to go in and talk with the family, the teachers about their child and what their needs are, what their strengths are, and um, how to really kind of promote that social uh, setting for them. 
So let's talk a little more about the feelings, the uh, psychology yep. of the parent in this case, because I think that's important. So uh, if I'm a parent and I have a child that appears to be on the spectrum, not too bad, he or she mm-hmm. is getting along, mm-hmm. um, I might be tempted to say, okay, I'm not going to do anything. I don't want my child labeled. Yep. And I think we can do this on our own. What yep. would you say to a parent like that? It's always a tricky question and I because th- I think it changes over time. So if you think about a very young child, with the social demands for a very young child, it's easy for us as parents to try to manage that and try to support that. When we get older, though, those social demands get really high and much more abstract and much more challenging for someone to navigate. So it's not uncommon for us to see kids who are 15, 16, 17 for the first time getting an assessment. And actually, we see quite adults now coming through an assessment. And as we become more aware of autism, I think it's been fantastic to get people thinking about maybe there's an explanation for why I struggle so much with social interactions and some of the other things that we talked about. So I think it's important just to have the information, and we can certainly talk about as a team with a family and a provider, what do you do with this information? Sometimes uh, parents have, they have choices. They may choose to not give it to anybody. You know, So uh, we, we talk about that. We, get, we make a plan. If, if their child's doing okay in school, do you have to seek out the school? Maybe not. Maybe you have that information from the medical side that you can use as a basis going forward. And if there's, if there's concerns in the future, you have that information and then you can use it. And sometimes it's the right, it's most appropriate to talk about it with everybody right away. So it's very individualized, but I think it's helpful to at least have it. Um, just talking to parents, I think the unknown is more anxiety provoking than having the known. And then again, talking about it with the provider to make a plan. Parents might feel guilty. Parents have a lot of reasons to feel guilty about their children. And this would be another example. Uh, and, and one of the questions they might ask, ask themselves is, did I do something? Is it me? Is it genetics? Um, let's circle back to uh, the foundations of autism and describe for us what we know about uh, where it comes from, how it's developed. We don't know a whole lot about that. That okay. is a, it's a huge question. Um, over time, we I feel like we've come to believe that it's probably has multiple etiologies. It's not just one. Um, there's a lot of studies happen right now uh, looking at the genetics behind autism. We do know there are a number of genes that are associated with autism, not just a couple, but a number. And there are great studies at the University of Minnesota right now, uh, along with nationwide studies, looking at what might be underneath, what, what might be underlying. And they are finding a number of genetic chromosome disorders, quite rare, that also mimic autism or look like autism, where that is a that's a newer... Um, trend. Years ago, we did not see people do genetic testing or, or chromosome testing like the way they are now. So we, I think years ago, thought it was maybe more of a single ideology, but right now we just, we think it's hundreds, <laughs> that these wow. symptoms tend to mimic each other. And that's what we call autism. Um, we do know that there is some genetic component for sure, but not for everybody. Um, so there is, there is a lot of ways to get the additional testing now to help provide some answers. Maybe. <laughs> right. This gets to a question that's sort of out there all the time yeah. with things like this, which is, do we have more autism now for some X factor or do we have more autism now if we do mm-hmm. because we're better at diagnosing it, we're smarter about it? Yeah. I think it's, 
Again, we don't know 100%, but I do, the majority of it is that we're much better at diagnosing it. We're much better at um, getting kids in early enough for us to look at across the age span. We're also seeing, like I said before, more adults coming too. So I think we're just getting more, as awareness happens, we're getting more people coming seeking out assessments. But we are better training um, educators and psychologists and medical providers, what are those signs of autism? So looking at um, getting accurate diagnoses. There's also a whole range of individuals that the symptoms are quite mild and subtle, and you really have to have a well-trained eye to know what you're looking for. And that's the group, that I think, in particular that we're catching more than we did years ago. So, Rachel, you mentioned adults coming in yeah. or, or recognizing that they yeah. may have needs. If I'm a parent and I've got my kid in Fraser, mm -hmm. uh, I'm worried about today, tomorrow, next week, and next year. But at some point, I'm worried about what about my child's future sure. when I'm not around. Yes. So how can you address my fears in that regard? Yep. Again, throughout the years, we have learned so much more about what supports that individuals on the spectrum need as adults, and we're providing many more services for them, both at Fraser and just we're talking about it much more as at the national level, which is exciting to see. So there's really about age 14 is when we start to talk about transition planning. The so schools are um, able to do a lot of that transition planning where kids can actually stay through 21 in Minnesota. Um, so they're looking at more kind of functional skills and making sure that people have more independent living abilities when they leave. There's also a range of different options um, as far as guardianship, that the different levels of guardianship. This is outside of my scope to talk about fully, um, but there are a lot of legal experts that and um, great advocacy groups that do a lot of training for families so that they understand their rights as parents and how can they help um, have some of that guardianship at some level or, or conservativeship and help make help that individual make um, decisions. But I just, I have to say there are so many, many stories of individuals on the spectrum living very productive lives. And we're all learning, I think, that individuals on the spectrum have a lot to give to society. We have to figure out and tap into what are their individual skill sets and strengths. And if we can do that, the oftentimes they're excellent employers or employees, sorry. Um, they are um, very skilled in particular areas. And if, if um, we can help them identify that and find the right match for them, they can often do very, very well. Right. A concern is oftentimes our individuals are underemployed. So there's a lot of focus happening with career employment and um, jobs right now. Great. Are there any questions that you'd like to address that I may have missed? Hmm. And while you're thinking, yeah. I'm going to um, address one particular word, which which I'm not a big fan of, which is the word disorder in, aus, oh, yeah, in yeah. autism spectrum disorder. Yeah. I, autism spectrum living might be, it yeah, sounds yeah. better to me, but... Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. I think, um, no, I hear that, and I think it's uh, very much a, a probably outdated medical term that we've used for yeah, years. Yeah, What it, how we use it and how, um, what it means to us in our field is looking at kind of those strengths and areas of needs that our kids have and that they have very high skill areas and then they have some needs that are maybe um, below eight peers. And so those peaks and valleys is kind of how, what we think about that. But yeah, I agree with you. It's a we know, because we all know people, most mm -hmm. of us do, uh, who are on the spectrum and who succeed very well and have tremendous yeah. skills. Can yeah. you please describe how uh, 
children who grow up to be adults uh, diagnosed with autism uh, come to embrace their skills and maybe give us some success stories? Sure. So um, I think that, that, well, there's a whole movement right now talking about neurodiversity and that if you look at any of the what we perceive as a challenge in autism or any other per se diagnoses, you can flip that to look at, at being a strength as well. And right. I am so excited that this movement is happening because it really shouldn't be seen as a limit, but it should be seen as how can we embrace that to really help them succeed. So there's a, a lot of um, information coming out now about neurodiversity. And as I sit in some conferences with a lot of individuals on the spectrum, I can see that there's this... Um, and ownership and energy around it and and um, embracing that diagnosis. And again, it's not a limitation, but it just it defines who they are in a very positive way. So I can think of a number of individuals who I've had the chance of, um, had the opportunity and the pleasure of working with over the years since I've been here for many, <laughs> many years. Um, and now as young as, as young kids, they came in with um, a range of needs as well as a lot of strengths. But now I can think of one who is uh, working at a college and in charge of the social um, program at, at the dorm. I mean, that's just incredible that's to me that the cornerstone of autism is social challenges, yet now in charge of the social curriculum or social, whatever it might be, program at, at the dormitory. So we hear those stories all the time. And I guess it's just really important for us to remember we can never put limitations on where we think these individuals might go. We could think of kids who need a lot of support when they were young. Had I maybe forecasted their future, I would have been totally wrong to where they are now. So I've just learned you, we, we have to, again, embrace those differences as abilities and how can we um, help shift that and guide them in a way that will make them successful. What a group, what a positive <laughs> message to end our first podcast. Thank you, Rachel, so much. It's been a pleasure talking yeah, with you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to FraserCast, a place where we discuss all things autism, mental health, and special needs. For more information, visit us at www.fraser.org. That's F-R-A-S-E-R.org. And once again, we'd like to thank our sponsor, Geritom Medical, a valued supporter of Fraser.